Hello to all of you out there. It's uh, Anthony Scaramucci, and welcome to our podcast, TMI. It's the motivation inside. I hope you have been enjoying these weekly podcasts. Our goal is in doing them is to give you a glimpse into how things really work professionally and personally. I like sharing with you the many faces of success. There's one of the many faces of success. Zoom in on him. It's important we understand that we have greatness inside. It's all about finding what motivates you, finding your passion, the things that you really like to do. This guy's a, I mean, you're a reporter. There's no question about it. You're a hardcore journalist, and that's why you're so good at what you do. Thank you. Uh, it's a place where we can share anything, wild and crazy stories, strengths and weaknesses, ideas. Some of you sent me questions when I said Charlie was coming on, and so we're going to go over some of those questions. Some of these questions are tough, Charlie. For those of you who do not know me, I'm the founder of Skybridge Capital. It's a global investment firm with about $12.5 billion under management. I've also been graced with the pleasure of being a Fox News and Fox Business contributor, and that man over there, Charlie Gasparino, helped help make that happen. So I say thank you to that because I've had a uh, I've had a one, I've had a wonderful <laughs> experience over there. You can say whatever you want. I co-host the iconic TV program Wall Street Week. Uh, I do that with Gary Kaminsky. Uh, it's on Friday nights at 8 p.m. We shoot a replay of that 9 a.m. Sunday and Saturday and Sunday, I should say. I've written three books. Two of them are out on the book stand. Perhaps no one's ever bought those two. I don't know. I buy a lot of them and give them out for free. Uh, if, by the way, if you email me today uh, and you want one of my books, I'll send it to you. The two books are the uh, Goodbye Gordon Gecko and the little book of hedge funds. I've got a third book coming out. We're calling that book Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole, How Entrepreneurs Turn Failure into Success. It's available on Amazon for pre-sale. It's coming out October 31st. You got to get the book party invite. By the way, we're, you're coming to the Hunt and Fish Club for the book party. I'm okay? very proud of you. Yeah. I'm, I'm proud of you. We're going to talk about it. Right? So, so, but this, but the, the third book is a real honest book about the perils of entrepreneurship because this business was almost out of business yeah. seven or eight years ago, Charlie. You know, and you remember that. So now I'm talking about a guy that was born in the Bronx, bred in the Bronx, got a beautiful wife living here in New York City. I really do think you're one of the best reporters on the street. And you've done that for a very long period of time. And I'm going to tell the viewers where I met you. Richie from uh, Goldman Sachs, the financial services analyst. Rich um, introduced Schwartz. The, yeah, Richie Schwartz. Yes. He introduced the two of us at a Met game. Met game, that's right. We were behind that's home right. plate in 1999. Right? And he says, Charlie, guess what? I said, oh, you're the beat reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Right. And we became know. fast friends after that. So that's 15, that's 16 true. years ago, that's, right? That's true. 17 yeah. years ago. So, so, so this is a guy that is a New York Times best-selling author. He's a friend. He's a colleague of mine. He's a fellow Italian. He's Fox News. I'm sorry, Fox Business Network senior correspondent, but also on Fox News all the yeah, time. Technically, I'm both. But technically, uh, both. I, okay, I'm so proud to say Fox Business. So and I'll tell you why. Because we what are a five, story Fox Business is. Though, we isn't were, it? we are the comeback kids. I mean, listen. I, when I first went there in um, 2010, you don't realize. Now I came. I went there right when I was at my peak at the at CNBC. I broke just about every story during the financial crisis. I had a I had an interesting uh, option on my contract, uh, and I hit the option mainly because I hated the guy running CNBC, not Hoffman, the guy who was right under him. 
I just want to tell you that right. I went there and I took a lot of crap from people going there uh, and um, it took a while and I'm telling you now we are hitting our stride and you know listen you we can lose it tomorrow so I'm just saying we don't take anything for granted here but um, we are not just doing good good reporting on politics. Programming is better. The confluence of politics yeah. and finance. We're kicking ass on mm -hmm. Bear Monsanto. We broke that story. We've been all over this Twitter fiasco that CNBC uh, tried to take uh, credit for uh, and screwed up. Um, and I'll tell you, that's how you build a brand and a base. Uh, listen, I mean, uh, and I'll say something that uh, uh, some of the guys that are FAs around the uh, country uh, three years ago, four years ago, uh, all CNBC all the time. Right. Today, okay, you've got a 60-40 blend. That's true. Of, right. of, 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 of you know, what are you going to say 60-40 blend of? I would say 60-40 blend CNBC, we're the 40. Yeah. You think it's the other way around? Oh, no question. We're the, we're the 60 now. Really? Oh, there's no question. You oh, know, that's because I, I do, I, you know, I'm in these, uh, and, I, and, I, and I, I texted Bill Shine. I took a picture. I was in a bar in uh, Michigan. And they had the Fox Business Channel. I went over to the bartender. I said, okay, I said, uh, why are you watching Fox Business over CNBC? He says, so the guys down here from uh, Morgan Stanley, they, they asked me to put, you know, when they come in after work, they said, put this on. And so it just stays on all day. I said, yeah, and he goes, by the way, it's, it's the programming. And I'm not dishing on CNBC. I'm not here to dish on CNBC. I am. We have creative, <laughs> we have creative programming and we have yeah. hard-hitting programming that is blending the politics with the financial stuff. And 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 by the way, I know it's good because I, I, I do know that CNBC does, you know, blend right. in now some of the stuff they that do. we've been doing. So, and and we, so. we should point out the politics is such a big part of Wall Street and regulation now. I mean, there isn't a single financial issue right now that 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 the that Washington isn't involved in. If you look at that Department of Labor thing, uh, edict that just got passed about, you know, uh, Brokers being fiduciaries. Think about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is going into effect now. Brokers are now sort of handcuffed, and what type of advice they can give because it's, of the double, it, and it never ends. It ends on a, it's on a big macro level. It's, it's on a totally micro level stupid like that. because what's going to end up happening is they're going to migrate all these assets in the ETFs right, and indexes at a time when the consumer and particularly in their four hundred one ks shouldn't be in those products. Right, I agree, and it's the same thing they did with the subprimes. They've right. got to get all these people to own these. These houses over allocation into housing. That? Government did that government, and government. brought it wall and gave the the sort of um, gave the push to Wall Street to create the products that did it. Okay. So remember when you go when you start talking about Wall Street, and particularly now, it's always been this way, but now there is a huge government role in Wall Street. I think that's what we bring to the table. We try to like sort of unpack that government role. Mm -hmm. And you can make better investment decisions when you know that government think, role. Charlie, that the the Anger towards Wall Street is justifiable anger. Some I, of it. I, I, some of it. Okay, right. so I'm not here to be an apologist for Wall Street. Right. However, what I know about our economy is that when there's harmony between Wall Street right. and Main Street, and the flow of capital is moving more quickly through the economy than it currently is, we get right. more growth. Uh, Mark Lazary and I debated each other last night. Very fun guy. Very yeah. high. Guy. Yeah, high-spirited right. debate, all policy. And he's a Democrat. He's a Democrat. He's a Democrat. big, he's a big Hillary surrogate right. and friend and supporter. Right. And I was obviously on the Trump side, and we debated each other. No demonic persecution of either candidate. Just hard-hitting on policies. 
And what you found is there was this point in the middle where we both looked at each other, boy, boy that really is true. The banks aren't lending money, Charlie, to small businesses. The banks yeah. are le- not lending money to the mom-and-pop entrepreneurs or the franchises, as a result of which it slowed down the economic growth and it slowed down the high-quality full-time jobs. You right. saw the jobs report. Numbers are, yeah, the print's okay, but the uh, full-time number's by the way, down. By the way, for a – print's okay, but that's not what was – that type of jobs number mm-hmm. should not be the bogey. Um, in, in with with this economy right now, we should be producing much more than that into a recovery right now. I mean, it's just well, well, it's just so bad. And, and, and I think there's a big debate as to why yeah, we're not. Know, he's he's disingenuous. Listen, I I think all liberals are disingenuous from this standpoint, especially Wall Street liberals. And I like Mark Lazary. Little story: Mark Lazary brought bought my friend friend of mine lived next door to him in Westport. He bought in a smaller house, but a beautiful house. He bought my friend's house. Knocked it down, put a tennis court there. So that's <laughs> he's got. He's got yeah, my buddy is rich, but Lazarus really rich. Hey, <laughs> but but here's the thing. This is but an here's why I think family from Morocco. Right. He yes. lived in Hartford, Connecticut. No, no, I've known both of them, and I have an enormous amount of respect. Yeah, for I him. like him, but I'm telling you, one of the things I think why liberals like him and, and friends of mine like Bob Wolf are so disingenuous is they'll sit there and talk logic with you, right? They'll say we agree that banking rules are stopping this taxes. You know, on the on the rich, you know, is going to have an impact on uh, on spending and the economy. And then guess what they do? They support Hillary Clinton. They go out and support someone. I have nothing against Hillary Clinton. I think she's a very very good spokeswoman for the left. Um, I don't care too much about the Clinton Foundation. I think she's. I think I think she should have been indicted, of course, because she did violate the law. But I'm telling you, just well, from Andrew, a, from, from, Judge but, Andrew is very big time on that. But I'm just mean, saying. But I'm just saying that they support this, this, these policies, and then they turn around, and then they, they turn around to you and say, "Well, you know what? Uh, I agree with you. The banks aren't lending." I mean, well, that makes well, sense. Well, we're we're get, I, I want to get into all that stuff, but I want to go back to Charlie Gasparino for a second. Okay. This is important. This is why people tune in for us. Okay, so I'll talk about the Bronx. I want to talk about you growing up. What was it like? Uh, I, my dad was an iron worker. Well, my dad was a type of iron worker. He's a, he was what's known as a wild actor. You can look it up. It's a, it's a, it, if you ever seen the rebar that comes out of the ground mm-hmm. and the mesh, that's what my dad did. And right. uh, he was out of work a lot when I was a kid because of the financial crisis. So they stopped building in the city. In the 70s. Um, and I'll tell you an interesting thing. Um, so I lived in the Bronx to a, when I was a kid. We moved to Westchester County. My father bought it kind of a crappy area you know it was like we had section 8 housing behind me but he bought a house that he could afford okay I bought the house in 1970 for like 16 grand he borrowed a thousand dollars from my grandmother who had that was the last thousand dollars he paid her back but he borrowed a thousand dollars and despite the fact that he was out of work a lot in the 70s especially during the financial crisis when it hit the city there was almost no construction in the city was on the balls of its rear end he never missed a mortgage payment he never, our house was never foreclosed on. God bless him. We always ate really well. So how did he do that? You know, he lived within his means. And, you know, I I, I was thinking back, because I covered a lot of the, fin- obviously, I, wanna, I covered the financial crisis. And I remember the class warfare debate that ensued, the banks ripping off people by giving them loans. Remember, that's the, that, that that's a non sequitur. That people got ripped off because the banks gave them free money, loans that they that they couldn't couldn't afford. But you know, my old man was a guy. I'm telling you, he graduated. He didn't really graduate from high school. 
went to a place in the Bronx called Samuel Gompers High School. It's a technical school. My mother didn't graduate from high school. She went to secretarial school. Um, but he, he was really smart, and he could add. And he knew if he made X, and he had to, you know, feed us, do this, do that, do this, pay the water bill, guess what? He'll have X amount of money left over to pay for the mortgage. And that's the type of guy. And this, I, that, this sort of stuff has impact on you as a kid, though. Because, yes. like, my dad, you know, listen, and I always say this, and people are probably sick of me saying it, but I grew up solidly in the middle class. Right. I don't remember my dad ever being out of work, but I do remember that there was a little bit of tension always in the house about right. making sure that right. everything was met well. And to your point, <clears throat> living within your means, right. which is something I have really tried to tell my children and I do myself, okay? No matter what the success I have, I still try to live in a regular neighborhood, in a regular area, right. and dial it back. There's no need to act like a showboater, you know? So, so what, was, what was the lesson that you got from growing up like that? Well, live within your means. And, you know, if, and you don't, I don't say you should be paranoid, but here's the thing. My cousin grew up in a housing project in the Bronx. My cousin grew up in the Throgs Neck Houses on Randall Avenue, right yeah, by St. Raymond's Cemetery. Remember the pool over there? They, they, they put the construction in there over yeah, there. It must have been a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, it was a public pool over but there. But here's, the th here's the thing. We were always one step away from that. And my old man fought. And so, like, when he was out of work, you know, he went and became a bartender. He drove a cab. He worked other things. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, that sort of, surviving that sort of adversity, um, you know, it, it builds you. And, mm -hmm. and we learned that from him. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I will, I always have a respect for Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump, you know, was a rich kid. He got, he, you know, he started on third base, no doubt. But the fact that he was on the balls of his rear end, and by, by the way, came back from that mm -hmm. insolvency, he's got to tell you something about his resilience. That's why he still has a shot at this election. Mm -hmm. And I think I learned that from my old man. I'm sure he learned that from his old man. Yeah, no doubt. There is a resilience that no you doubt. need. You need to live within your means, mm -hmm. You need to, but you need to learn how to fight my when, Italian, you're, when you're up against the My world. Italian friends that lived in Trump apartments over in Jamaica on the right. way to the JFK, they all tell the same, same story about his dad, that when he went to collect the rent, if a guy was out of work, and let's say he was cabin for a little while, something like that, right. and, uh, you know, and, and Donald Trump was with him, you know, they were at the thing, right. Fred Trump said, okay, let me tell you something, you're going to pay me, so you can have two months, and then you pay me for the rent for the both of those months and two months. And he used to do that for people, and they were very appreciative of it. And one of the reasons why Donald J. Trump Jr. calls his father a blue-collar billionaire is that the old man, Fred Trump, forced him into that environment as a kid, where he was meeting with the construction people, right. he was meeting with the people that were helping him build the stuff, but he was also meeting with the renters in the Trump housing. Oh yeah, And they had great empathy for the blue-collar, middle-class struggle yeah. Uh, that we all experience. Donald, Donald is a very decent guy in many ways. Uh, I, I think that it, that could have came out more during the campaign, to be honest with you. I, I think, listen, I, I know, listen, you do it's, things it's to get represented elected. his children, though. It children is. are phenomenal. Great people. kids. But I don't know him that well. but, no, I, but I, I got to know him over the last six um, months. I know Eric a little kids. bit from the, from the green room at, uh, at Fox. But uh, so he, listen, good people. I'm just, and his wife is very, very nice, obviously beautiful. Funny story, um, I, during the Fox business debate last year, I run into Donald. He comes up to me and goes, oh, Charlie, you say such stuff about me, and blah, 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 blah. And I said, Donald, you're running for president. You got to get used to this crap. 
And then he goes, yeah, you're right, you're right. And he goes, let me be, let me introduce you to my wife, Melania. I said, Mrs. Trump, when you become president, you're going to be the hottest first lady. <laughs> and she looks at me, she goes, thank you. <laughs> and then Donald goes, and who's going to care about me, right? <laughs> hey, you thought you were going to be a boxer, man. I know that from the back of the day. I uh, Zoom in on that nose a little bit. John, yeah, get the nose. Okay, go. Uh, how many, how many times? Oh Jesus! Christ. How many, how many times did you break that nose? Um, a lot. And you know, the biggest mistake of my life is in 1980. I was ready. People to tell fight. you look a little bit like Marciano when you were a kid, though, right? People tell you that. No, Boo Boo Mancini. Man, Mancini for sure. Yes, well, and, Marciano and Mancini. But here's the thing. So in 1980, I was ready to fight in the Golden Gloves. Everybody in my boxing, uh, in the club that I'm. Boxstad in in uh, in Shreveport, New York. A guy named Jack Milanofi and Marsh Haddad. They were really good trainers. Marsh is still around. He's still training people apparently. Uh, they they all went, and um, you know it was kind of interesting. I uh, my nose got screwed up a little bit, but what really got into me is that I started getting really into girls. I really wanted. To, that's all I cared about. So I stopped boxing. And the biggest mistake I met. I, 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 I did, tell me something. You get really into girls, you stop boxing. Yeah, it doesn't... that's all I wanted to do. I didn't want to. I didn't want to. I didn't want to go to the gym as much anymore. So, I never forget. So I'm sitting at a bar back then. You know, was, you know, you could sneak into bars because it was 18. If you were under 18, you could still sneak in. Uh, because you know, what's the difference between 17 and 18? So I'm at a bar having a beer, and I'm watching my sparring partner, who I used to kick the crap out of, win the semifinals in the gloves. And when I when I saw that, you know, just to to get laid, you know what I'm saying? I said, I, I, when I saw that, I said to myself, oh my God, what did I do? And you know, I never, it, it was a life lesson. I'm never gonna say, you know, I'm never not gonna go for it, right? I'm gonna finish the story. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna persevere. Big lesson and for I'm kids. I'm never gonna say, I'm never gonna say what if. And that's the big thing, never say what if. Big lesson for kids. Because I should have stayed in it. Push, you gotta push. All right, it's a big lesson. So now you, you're converting all of this ambition from boxing into journalism. Yes. So what sparked that? Um, well, it was interesting because my parents hated. My father was a Nix was a was a what you call a, a part of that forgotten majority. He was a Reagan Democrat, a Nixon Dem Democrat, and he hated the, he hated the press for bringing down Nixon, right? And uh, so I'm telling him I want to be a journalist. I like writing a little bit. And he goes, "You're out of your mind." Don't do it, you know, blah, blah, blah. My parents hated the fact that I wanted to do that. And, you know, being a blue-collar guy, but journalism... I'm proud of you, though. Now look at the success that you've they had. They would be. My, my parents died when I was in my 20s. No, so, I know um, that. But that's why I'm asking. You yeah, think they, they would be proud of you today? I think sure so. I think so. But, you know, no here's question. the thing. I, you know, they're, I don't know if they would have... They, they, they wouldn't have gotten everything. You know, they're just... They, they weren't those type of people. You were a good student, too, right? I was. But here's what... The, but being a blue-collar ethnic in this business... Especially, it's different in Wall Street. You're almost accepted. You know, you can, listen, if you really... There's certain firms you're not accepted. Okay, but... I mean, it's just the bottom line. They can true. pretend... But that's true. And they put different colored people and different yeah. ethnic people on the annual report. But at the end of the day, yeah. no, that's, that's a facade. But there is there is more openness, in I believe, in on Wall Street for for that for that type of diversity than journal. Journalism is, is a very Ivy League, um, rich, white kid... Uh, profession and to break that is not easy. Why are the journalists all liberals, Charles? Um, well, that's a good question. I think part of it is um, the fact of that upbringing. It's a very elitist mm -hmm. upbringing that um, 
you know, if you look at the typical journalist, print journalists, they, they all have sort of the same, they're third generation or second generation college educated from going to college. They come from, you know, upper middle class backgrounds. Um, and, you know, they're, and, and they're willing to make a lot less money. And I think you put those three things together. And then here's the thing. There's been a, there's a social scientist, I can't remember his name, but back in the 70s or yeah, late seventies. He wrote about the the, the, the this uh, cultural change in journalism, the culture of crit of criticism that enveloped journalism, where it became much more of an adversarial profession to government, uh, and generally liberals were attracted to that. Now, what's interesting now, what the way everything has changed, is that journalists now are not adversaries so much to government as they are proponents of the government. It's it's really interesting. Um, Woodward and Bernstein. When they when they wrote about Watergate, um, they were typical liberals that that didn't trust government, and you can see Bob Woodward's on uh, on Fox News all the time. Mm -hmm. Now they would be considered very moderate, mm -hmm. almost maybe moderate Republican. Yeah. Maybe not Bernstein, mm -hmm. but more but Woodward yeah. would but because they because sure. they don't trust government that much, and um, that's different from the typical journalists now. Now it's interesting the, the the business. I think they sowed the seeds of their own demise right now because. Um, it's so much easier based on technology to filter out the New York Times. Right. I mean, I don't have to read it. I do because I like I like a lot of stuff there. Yeah. And as liberals they are, they have some amazing reporters. Yeah. But you can pick and choose what you want to read in the Times. You don't yeah. have to buy the whole friggin' paper. Right. I agree with that. And you can find it online. And you know, they've sowed the seeds of their own demise by being so strident in their left-wing ideology. So do you think that that's changed the fact? I mean, I think one of the legacies of this campaign, though, is that the it's just now there is a media cabal. Uh, it literally, I said this on Sean. It's, it's actually disgusting. I, I said it on Sean Hannity's show the other night that it used to be called the fourth estate to protect us from the three other organizations in the government and the balance of powers. And now it's become an instrument of the state. The journalists in Moss are for Secretary Clinton in this campaign. They've got a license from their editorial community. Right. Say and do whatever you well, need. I thought the most disgusting thing was uh, 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 over the debate for the vice president. I just want to bring this right. up. If you went to Time Magazine, a, a something I've been a subscriber to forever, Time Magazine on the eve of the debate, 8.55, 8.30, Vice presidential debate, seven, eight tweets on how fantastic Senator Tim Kaine is. And he was horrible. Actually. Three or four tweets on how bad I, Governor Mike Pence is before the debate started. Well, I'm like, really? Let's, let's From Time Magazine? Let's, let's be real what's clear. up, guys? Let's, That's sort of nuts. I know, but let's be real clear with what's going on here with, with this election. This election, first off, liberal journalists are always going to be against the conservative Republican, okay? Take that as it may. Yeah, no question. But this is we can't, up. But we this can't is, whine about okay. that, by the but way. But this is ramped up to another level because what they believe, what all these reporters, and I talked to a lot of them, believe is that Donald Trump truly is evil, that he's a racist, that he's a bigot, that he, that he basically played the race card to win the Republican nomination and, you know, was not and was not afraid to keep that going to maintain. He's not a bigot. You yeah, think but, he's a bigot? But let me just make the point. That's what they he's believe. He's not a bigot. That's what they believe. And, th and believing that... They now, from their from their editors and yeah. from their producers, have carte blanche to basically do whatever they want to stop this yeah. nomination. It is almost I, like they're, they're on a crusade. I, I, I do find That's that I before. do find that disgusting. I tell you another thing, I find absolutely disgusting that in a First Amendment. Well, you saw the column I wrote in Fox Business I about did. this. I did. I thought it was very well done. And, I, and Jim Rutenberg of yeah. the New York Times actually 
picked up a couple lines. And on top of it all, there's a huge jealousy of Donald Trump. Listen, let's be real clear. You're a print journalist. You're making gots for money, right? So here's a guy, and you. And by the way, you want to get on TV a lot, so maybe you could supplement your, your, your income and maybe sell a book or two and get some fame. So you're one of these people. So here's a guy that owns TV, that's incredibly, that's incredibly successful, throws it in your face, has the hottest wife in the world. There is a huge jealousy factor here on him. Now that said, and I've been, like I said, I've been very critical of Donald. He does give the rope to make the noose out of. I mean, some of the things he says are, are insane. And, you know, um, and, and they're, they're so unfiltered that you know he really doesn't mean it, but he says it anyway. Listen, you when know, he said this, Anthony, I'll make this point to you, and I would make this to Donald. When he said, you know, they come in, when we made the immigration comments when he first started running, they're coming over here. We get the worst of them. Now, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Uh, they're this, they're that, they're rapists. Okay, now, what he should have said, because anybody knows any immigrants, I mean, they're hardworking people, I'm not for unfettered immigration. Far from it. I think I have no problem with a wall. But some may be rapists. Most are okay, generally so good. I, I, so when you, you got to go but, back to that tape, though, because he did say that. No, he he said some. some. He did, did. not say I, some. We're going to do a fact check on that. He did okay? not say some. Let's go back to Charlie. And I, and I, but I do, I do want to say something to you that before I go back to Charlie, right. Donnie Trump Jr. said something the other day. The liberals love the First Amendment until you say something that they <laughs> well, disagree a, with. That, that, and I find that the most ironic thing. There was a guy, or I shouldn't even say a guy, because I don't even want to dignify the guy's name. Right. There's a person sitting in that chair a few months back. Oh, really? Uh, a great opposition to me politically has X'd me out as a friend as a result of my Donald Trump support. Oh. I'd rather not say, because I don't even want to give him any publicity or anything like right. that. I think he's a complete total loser and and in in my opinion, uh, people can be on opposite sides of the aisle of and still maintain their friendships and their relationships. We, we're patriots first, and obviously partisans second. Right. I don't I don't like attacking people on their personhood, and I'm not immoral to support Donald Trump, Mister Liberal. I'm sorry, just have to tell you no, that the society's very screwed up, and the people that I grew up with are getting buried by your policies. So yeah. we have to fix the country. So. So but let's go to this, okay? You've become a very successful reporter, great writer. You worked at the New Newsweek, and then you went to the Wall Street Journal. No, I worked at Newsday. Newsday, for a okay. Bit, and I spent about nine. I spent nine years at the Journal, and I spent a couple years at Newsweek, and then I spent time at the CNBC and here. Uh, and early in my you career, you went to the University of Missouri, right? Yeah, I started for journalism. I, I went to Pace University because that was the only place that would accept me as an undergrad, and. Uh, I studied hard, got good grades, editor of the paper, and um, I went from there. I got my graduate degree at the University of Missouri, which is one of which the is best. one of the top journalism yeah. schools in the world. If you don't know yeah. journalism, one of the, depending Columbia, on the year, it is the top. University, yeah, University of Missouri. You know, you know, if someone's gone there, you know that they're hardcore journalists. What, what was great about that school is um, they let you know. It was interesting. Like I went there, kind of rough, but I. They let you if you if you worked hard you, enough. You went there kind of rough, then you're like softer now, right? You, yes. You, 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 no, intellectually up. rough is what I meant. Intellectually rough. I'm, okay. I'm the same way. The other, <laughs> but so I went there a little intellectually rough, but they uh, gave you enough. They actually encouraged you to take courses outside the core journalism courses. So I spent. I worked my way through. To be honest with you, I did not. I the program is like a year and a half, two two year program. 
I was there for three years because I worked through, and I didn't know, I, I owed like $500 in student loans when I left there. That was the great part. I got assistantships. And I also, because I like lengthened it out, I took a ton of econ, and because I always liked business, and I actually studied macroeconomics. I actually studied foreign exchange and banking policy from an e economic standpoint. And I'll tell you, the reason why I was able to break so many stories during a financial crisis, particularly Bear Stearns implosion, you name it, AIG, was I understood the funding markets. I understood the funding markets because I took so much econ, and then when I, I got a job, when I, I, I worked at the Tampa Tribune when I, when I left Mizzou, I worked at a couple places, did a bunch of internships, worked at the Tampa Tribune, then I went and worked at a trade publication where I covered actually the repo market as one of my beats. And years later, even when I was at the Journal, but even after that, when I was at CNBC, particularly during the financial crisis where it really matters, I understood the repo market and, and short-term funding, what it meant for banks and brokerage firms. And I was able to see that thing coming a mile ahead. But, but you know, look, I mean, another hallmark to your success, in my opinion, though, is you've got great relationships with people. I mean, you've cultivated yes. some amazing yeah. sources. So, yeah. so have you done that? Um, you know, one of the interesting things is that during the financial crisis, I was, you know, during when Bear Stearns blew up, I was very critical. You know, I, I wrote critical stuff about Jimmy Kane. And uh, this is the I'm really CEO. surprised by that that yeah. you wrote critical stuff. But about you know somewhere. what? I was also friendly. I was also friends with him, uh, friendly with him, and I like Jimmy a lot. And we still every now and then say hello. And you know, um, and by the way, I knew he smoked pot for years. Yeah, he once tried to hand me a joint did, in the elevator. Did Bill Cohen write a whole thing? I think I remember reading yeah, the book, it, The it, House it, of Cards. Or I something. knew it so. I knew it. Like, <laughs> yeah. listen, here's why I never reported about it, and this is why I think he I was. Think there's Respect more than me. just Jimmy Kane smoking the reefer, though. Yeah, but here's why I never reported that. I, it, he, I, I think that's a kind of a victimless crime, smoking pot. You know, to be honest with you, as a libertarian, I don't. I, and if you were gonna write about everybody on Wall Street that smokes a joint, could you imagine that? I mean, it's like mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not a self-righteous person. I don't, I don't engage. Don't, I don't, I don't want my kids to do it because their I, brains are listen, too young for that I stuff. I at this point, I don't. And I don't do it, and I haven't done it since I was like 20 years old. Well, I, okay, I've never done it. But I'm just telling you that I didn't care, and I didn't think the pot was affecting his job. What was affecting his job was the fact that you know he um, he like everybody else, they they drank the Kool Aid about you know what they were doing on Wall Street, and it had nothing to do with pot. So I never cared about that. But you know, here's the thing: that's why he'll pick up the phone every now and then and call me. Right. Because I never... That's the example of you cultivating sources. But he did try to hand me give a joint the, once in the Bear Stearns elevator. <laughs> I was like, what the hell is that? I said, are you giving me a joint? He goes, take it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> give, us, give us the Charlie Gasparino recipe for source cultivation. Well, I think if you stay honest, like I did with him, I called him as I see him. Listen, I talked to Carl. You don't think I ever wrote a, a nasty thing about Carl Icahn? Mm -hmm. You know, Carl and I get along great. Legend. But... Love him. But you know what? We, uh, you know, he knows that I call him as I see him. Uh, same thing with Trump. And I think, you know, um, also, the other thing I do is I hold confidences. I don't. Uh, that's true. You tell me something, it's a, it's a oh, that's, you know. That's 100%. Uh, that's you know, it. You know, it's, it's interesting my word is my bond. Some, some people have the wrong feeling about certain reporters. Right. If I said to you, hey, look, man, this is completely off the record, blah, 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 blah. 
take it to the bank. I yeah, know, I don't, never, I never, never. Yeah, I, give I don't you, do that. I give you, you can go to another reporter and say, this is off the record. And say, you know, it's in the paper and somehow it's tied back to you. And you're like, really? Yeah. You have now, to do just that? so you know, yeah. in their defense, some of these guys, yeah. they're hearing it from three other people too. Right. I've, I've right. had the, 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 the thing where the, 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 um, the sort of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, the instances where someone say, Charlie, totally off the record. And then five people would tell me something. Right. And then I do it and they call you. I thought it was all through. I said, dude, you know, it's, it's out there. You right. Know? Okay. Well, that makes sense. I mean, that's yeah. why we're doing something. Like it right. educates people. So, so I would say to you, when I really think about it, that Wall Street fears you. Really? You think so? I think they do. Yeah. And um, I'll say something else to you, okay? And, uh, and a lot of your colleagues at Fox Business would also say this to you. Yeah. That when Fox Business was in its native years and you're moving right. over there and it was trying to create the ascendancy that it's currently right. now experiencing you're a big help on that you know and 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 social media help because right. you'd fire out tweets i'm right. going out to talk about xyz right. and all of a sudden you would see some ratings pick up because people are like all right this guy's got good sources and he knows what the hell's going on and he's going to say something relevant right and it, it kept me relevant when i was um in um in in a time, and that's why Wall Street feared me. Listen, I, I can tell you this. I, I know this for a fact. Um, I was dealing with a PR person at Morgan Stanley back in 2010 where I said, I want to get James Gorman on, okay? This PR person who's not there anymore, she says, well, you know, Fox Business, we really don't care about you guys. I go, really? I said, okay. So here's what I did. For the next sort of three weeks, I wrote stories on the Huffington Post various places on Twitter, you name it, <laughs> that really called into question James Gorman's leadership at at uh, in 2010 of Morgan Stanley, where he was having a rough patch, as, as, as a matter of fact. So guess what happened? He came back on the air with me. And by the way, he and I are friends now. We, we're, Welcome. We're, I, we're, I think we're James like, is an incredible yeah. guy. But I'm telling you, that's, I, I, that's and how... And this is very profiling. So I get along I, with all Australians. Yeah, I don't way, even know yeah, why, but they're, I do. They're, they're, they're great. They're, they're great. Yeah, but, but here's the thing. My point is, that's why Wall Street fears me. You put up a wall, I'm going to go around that wall. Mm -hmm. You want to shut me out? The worst thing that John Thane ever did to me when he was running Merrill Lynch in the New York Stock Exchange mm -hmm. was not talk to me. You the remember. worst thing. And I, and by the way, I... You know, and and, and, he, and he, so he cuts me out. Doesn't talk to me. Right, Guess so what? A I wrote, here I broke the story. Not just that he was getting blown out. A Bank of America post post the Merrill merger in two thousand nine or two thousand eight. I actually broke the story about his wonderful office. Remember his? Yeah, totally. His yeah, I remember one point three million dollars. <laughs> that was me. There's a lesson here for people that are listening, and there's lesson fear for hedge fund managers in particular. Uh, because a lot of PR firms that you're going to or you're paying them to keep you out of the press and you're paying them to shield yourself from Charles Gasparino. Right. But I think this is a terrible mistake because in the age of social media, Huffington Post, Twitter, Facebook, etc., the narrative is being formed on you whether you like it or not. You're right. And you have to contribute to that narrative. You have to yeah. come out of the shadows and offer up who you are as a person, either as a rebuttal to the criticism yeah. or something forward. Is there one story that's changed your life? That I've done? Yeah. Or that you've experienced? Well, the... Um, For Bo Deedle, it was that very famous murder where the kids got killed yeah. and, and the nun got hurt and that whole thing, you know. Well, the financial crisis was huge. I mean, listen, I, I covered a lot of 
financial crisis leave. And when you're at the Journal, I was there for a long time at a really, really sort of key period of time. I was there through the through the, the internet bubble, the build up to it, it's it's breaking, the corporate scandals. Then I went to Newsweek. Then I went to CNBC. If you took that from 1995 to 2010 of my career, a lot of shit happened then, particularly the implosion of the entire financial system. And I think covering that, how the financial system blew blew up, and, you know, CNBC get, got hit on that, I remember at the time, we got hit, there were too easy on Wall Street and too hard. It was like both narratives were out there. I mean, we were pretty much, I mean, listen, there were some people that said, made some boneheaded comments on air, um, but for the most part, if you, re if you watched us, you knew this, the train was coming down the track and you either get off or, or you know, because the thing's going to crash. You kind of knew it. Or just, you know, hold on for your life and just ride it out. Um, and I think that that whole period of time really changed me because, you know, when I was covering the financial crisis, aside from the fact that you wanted to break the story about what was going on and how bad it was, you actually, in the back of your head, saw bread lines. I mean, you actually saw how close mm -hmm. we were to. There's no question. Great I think depression. you know. Look, and I and I and I've had this conversation with some of the guys on the Economic Council. You know, the the Federal Reserve, particularly Dr. Bernanke's work, historically, right. same where the Fed is now. Right. Maybe they've lost a little bit of credibility because of the long-term nature of these zero interest rate policies. But boy, did he save us from a major, major catastrophe. Not saying there weren't bad side effects and so forth. But he right. did most of the right things right at the right time. Yeah, um, he saved the financial system. Now, what, where they screwed up, and I think part of it was the messaging. None of them, uh, of the, 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 the the sort of key guys that were part of the uh, financial bailout, Geithner, um, Bernanke, or, or, or Hank Paulson. And I, I actually like Hank a lot. I don't know, I know Bernanke a little bit, or Geithner, know him a little bit. Hey, but Hank I, Paulson's an Eagle Scout. Yeah, he's a, but, but none I, of them I have are an enormous amount of respect none, for him. But, but here's I, the I problem. Work for him at Goldman. None of them are particularly effective spoke, uh, communicators. They're actually lousy communicators, each one of them in different ways. You know, uh, Bernanke is very insular, doesn't really talk much. Uh, Geithner is kind of like scatterbrained when you hear him talk sometimes. And Hank is just, you know, rough around well, the edges. But Hank would, and, be, Hank would admit that. You know, Hank uh, no, would tell I'm not you, that you know, he's but, not, but at that point of time. He's the most emotive, most expressive guy. At that guy. point of time, particularly afterwards, you needed to, like, explain this and to the American people. Right. The fact that they didn't sell it, and this is a key thing. This is why sell, selling and marketing is huge, and you know it. The fact that they didn't sell right. it has had... Long-term ramifications. I agree we, with that. We are still there's still people. That I think are, Hank would agree with that. By the way, I don't. But I think he would think agree with that. There's there's all this class warfare shit. Now, some of it is justified. Ninety percent of it's not. Uh, hatred of Wall Street, which you know, actually, you can't have jobs if you can't you know you can't get finance. Has to have a harmony between Wall yeah, Street and, and Main and Street. And people still think that this is like this is just out there to rip people off. And part of it was the fact that when the financial crisis came, no one explained it well. And no one explained the need for it. And, um, 100%. And, uh, and, you know, if you tried, you know, you were you were attacked by the left and even the far right. And I think, you know, here's the thing. Wall Street is never going to be popular. Uh, you know, listen, they were, during um, during the Great Depression, there were hearings. You know, they almost put the head of uh, J.P. Morgan in jail during it, or Citibank during it in yeah. the 30s. Um, you know, there's always going to be that. And there was hatred back then for Wall. You know, and I and I said this last night in my remarks with uh, Mark Lazary that the hatred started in the 30s. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt said, "I love the scorn and the vitriolic hatred that the bankers have towards me. I relish it." It ended with the election of Prescott Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush's father, 
and George Walker Bush's grandfather right. to the Senate in Connecticut. Then Wall Street from the mid-50s into the 80s yeah. went back on a relative ascendancy where people have respected bankers again. So unfortunately for Wall Street, it's a 25-year cabal of hatred unless Wall Street does more and yet, in the community and the way, making a, a public where, service and public relations and here's outreach. why no Wall Street guy should ever support a liberal Democrat. When Jamie Dimon, the head of J.P. Morgan Chase, was actually in 20, 2009, 2010, 2011, stepping up to the plate, trying to fill that void. In the old days, that void would have been filled by someone like Dick Grasso at the New York Stock Exchange, mm -hmm. when that was the epicenter of capitalism. It isn't now. Right. So and so, there's no one at the New York Stock Exchange, this sort of like mm -hmm. meeting place, so to speak, that could, that could step up. But Jamie tried to take the mantle and be that voice of reason. Hey, we're not all bad. Hey, here's what the bailout did. Hey, this is what... This is why you know banks are. Yeah, I respect Jamie. For and that. guess what happened? They went out and they conjured up. They actually yeah, yeah. made up. Yeah, and they find him. And they not find him. They they yeah. they, they, they they roasted his ass right. for a year. And oh. and I'm telling you, I'm telling you that that that's that was done by the Obama Justice Department. And you know if you're going to be out there and, and say you're you're a proud liberal, remember what they did. And the tyranny, on Wall Street. I can't believe anybody the, on Wall Street would give a dime to the The Democrats. tyranny in the society will come from the left. At the end of the day, it will because of what I said about... Will the, has. Yeah, because of the, the they, they have this morally righteous, yeah. sanctimonious Listen. point of view that they're right, and so therefore, definitionally, you're wrong. And so then they can subvert the system. They can move the law right. and shape the law in a way because the... Ends justify those Listen, means. Look how they're perverting every. So and that's how you lose a republic. That's how you lose a democracy because ultimately you have to be subordinate to the rule of law. And we should have seen it. And it's the left. It's not even liberals, by the way. I know a lot of liberals that are that, that recoil from this. The left, what they've done on college campuses, and it's the reason why I get every they now and then. Shame you if you don't have their yeah, view, and then I, therefore you can't talk. I need a safe zone to talk in because I'm offended by it's you. Worse than that. You, there's no free speech on college campuses. There's no free speech on college campuses. Right saying now. They're doing it in high school. So look, look. Yeah, they're doing it in high schools. I mean, it's disgusting. So here's what here's what conservatism is supposed to do in that face is provide that alternative. And I think, um, you know, when we when we after this election, when we you know uh, get this out of the way, and unfortunately, I think Donald's going to lose. I. I, I, All right, well, I'll take the other side. We'll have a gentleman's bet on that because I, I actually think <laughs> that you just said he's the art of the comeback. I, hope I you're think right, but at I think the end I, of the, I listen, was in I Macomb in County, 70% Democrats, boom, boom, boom on every lawn, Trump, Trump, Trump. I hope you're right. I'm just Trump, trying to because the country. Michael Moore sees the same thing that I see. Okay, he sees. Yeah, but he's a freaking idiot. Come okay, on. but he sees the blue collar Democrats saying, I, mean, I had Michael enough Moore. of this nonsense. Listen, I'm, I'm for, I hope you're right. But I think Donald. He's got to prepare and do well in this next debate because the, the country, listen, here's the thing. I mean, this comes down to voting blocks. I mean, first off, if you sit there and you criticize a woman's weight, okay, and you and you, and you you double down on it on Twitter like you did, I'm not saying when he did it at the time he shouldn't say, I mean, you're running the Miss America pageant. You should be in shape for that. I hate to say it, right? But the way he came back and said it again and again, if you're going to harp on stuff like that, women are not going to like you. Okay, that's number one. And number two, I don't think the uh, the country is ever going to elect a guy that doesn't prepare for a debate. All right, all right. So, so, so I got so I hope he prepares. Questions, for questions coming in here. Okay, ask yeah. Charlie to expand his thoughts about growing 
wimpification of young people. Yeah, I said that on um, on the air a couple of times. Here's what I would say. This was, I, I, this was some of my comments directed to millennials. Let's be real clear. Millennials have fought and protected this country by fighting in some brutal wars, right? Yeah, no question. Ira no in Iraq, Afghanistan. No question. Um, here's where crazy my, is right. it, it, these are mostly blue-collar kids that do it. Um, they're they're the best of the best, okay. But when you because but when you look at the sort of college educated the kids that come from that that we generally run into, um, it's a different ballgame than when I grew up. Um, they there is a pamperedness to them. Totally. Um, there's also a fear factor. Let me tell you something. If I when I went to college in the in the eighties, and you know people that would tell you this, particularly in Missouri, I mean if someone told me I can't open my mouth because you know, what I'm saying is semi-conservative, and I would have told that person to go fuck themselves. You know, no offense. Really? You would have said that? Uh, yes. I'm surprised by that, yes. because I've never I, heard I you a, use profanity I had, a, I, had a, I had a professor. I'll never forget the guy. The guy's name was Bob Terrell. He was saying that there was racism in not covering a certain story. So he was a black professor. And I actually liked the guy, personally. But we got into a fight. He said there was racism. I said, really? What's, and there's some story about... Um, here, a, 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 um, a piece of town that was, um, you know, that, that was very poor. And I said, really, give me the story because I want, I want the friggin' Pulitzer. If no one wants the story, you tell me. I'll never forget. He came up to me and he started screaming. Goes, you want the MF story? I'll get. I said, listen, if you pull, take that finger, put it in my face again. I will bite it off. I will bite it right off. And he apologized to me after that. Um, I don't know if the kids today. You know, going to college would have done that. Maybe mm. if they served in the Marines and mm. then went to college, they might. Yeah. But right, most yeah, of the kids so today so. are pampered. And then so, there's a wussification. So, so let me rag you a little bit, okay? So this is coming from somebody. Why does Charlie over talk or talk over <laughs> everyone that doesn't agree with him? Such a nasty, arrogant thing to do. Your response is, you. <laughs> um, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just better, I'm just better at it. You know, everybody does that on TV. I just uh, that's the right answer. The right answer is that <laughs> if you're on television, you. <laughs> you're, you're on television, you got to get your two cents in. And unfortunately, right. sometimes... You're either you know, good at it or you're not. But Tim Kaine, very bad at it. Okay, Pence, much better than Tim Kaine at it, frankly. Yeah. I think you're actually pretty good at it, actually. I think you actually... The one thing I will give you... I think actually you listen. Yes, I do. You know, and, and, and that's a very huge, important skill set. I remember when... I started hosting, like, I'm not really a TV host. I just play one on television, right? right? And so she's hitting me over the head, and she said, the, the, the number one thing you have to do is listen. Right. Okay, and, and I think that's super important. But you know, listen, but keep the conversation going. So yeah, there, of course, there is of course. A, listen, Neil Cavuto cuts me off all the time. He does it seamlessly. <laughs> no, yeah, 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 he's great at it. But he does it seamlessly. He's great at it. I mean, you know. Yeah. So. He also put me to bed at midnight after the debate. He says, yeah, 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 yeah. But you're in the tank for Pence. Because you know, I was like, <laughs> I thought Kane got demolished. I mean, I was like, this guy's gotten completely demolished. Well, dude. I remember you, you texted me. The yeah. night of the debate. Yeah, I was having dinner somewhere. And, I said, this and is unbelievable. I mean, this guy either wasn't prepared, he was overprepared, he was trying to make an impression that he couldn't make. But, you know, he, he you know, and it, by the way, I'm not saying debates define people and they shouldn't, but he, he, he needed to go to a different debate. He needed debate to ratchet it back a little bit. Why? Uh, we got to go, unfortunately, but yeah, why all the craziness and the fighting with the trolls on the Twitter feed? Um, what is that all about? 
I, you know, it's that's a good question because my wife tells me to stop doing it all the time. Um, I just you, you know what I don't. He's teasing Trump about his Twitter feed, but he's I'm not running for president. I, he's from Queens. <laughs> you're from the block. Your not Twitter feed is like you know googoots, and you know um, the you Italians know is, you know, listen is, and they know googoots means you're crazy listen, on Twitter. Half of it, I'm, I'm having a little fun. Uh, the other half is I don't like people like listen. I I don't know why people get off calling other people names behind a fake name. It, 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 it doesn't it seem like it's so... I mean, That's the nastiness of social media. But it's hard. Really, By the way, you really know what? happens is you get to really see... You know what, Anthony? The inner nastiness of human beings. That's why, this, that's why no one's going to buy Twitter. <laughs> this thing, this social media thing, is so disgusting, and it's filled with so much crap and vile that anybody that buys this thing is crazy. Uh, and I don't it's know how you monitor... about Twitter, though, too. There's a news feed. You get the news... In, there's blogging, journalism, there's Periscope. There's some good things. I don't know how you filter it out. You know, I, I, I'm not saying no one's going to buy it. Someone's going to buy it, but they're going to buy it at a much lower price. Oh, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. So, so uh, I got to rapid fire these questions. Okay, okay, so rapid fire answers. We all know that your reports move markets. Why? Uh, because they're generally right. I mean, listen, no report is 100% right, but I'm, I give you 90 <laughs> can Wall Street, it's a very broad general right. question, can Wall Street be trusted? Uh, they're a necessary evil. If you don't look at it that way, you know, caveat emptor, right? You, mm -hmm. you trust, you know, every cliche, trust and verify. Yeah. Trust but verify. I, I think even your broker, he's, he's generally a nice guy. But remember, his his interests are generally aligned with his pocketbook. Right. So just right. keep that in mind. Well, that's, that's something the DOL is looking at. But at the end of the day, a good FA is really helping a client protect their family and that, grow but, their wealth. But you have to go into it with a much more of an arm's length relationship. I understand. You can't that. trust totally. You, you, you go out a lot. Actually, what are some, I don't. You don't? I go out three nights a week with sources. All right. So, what are your favorite joints? Uh, well, you would throw something at me if I didn't say this, but it's true. I like the Hunted Fish Club. <laughs> oh, but you're in there a lot, brother. And they like you, man. You know, Nelson, you my, know like my partner at the Hunted Fish Club, loves having you. They even made a drink after you. What's the name of the drink that they created? I, by the way, he's... The, the, I mean, I had the Mucharita in there for a little while. Like yeah, what do you, what do you, or something. They stopped doing it because I didn't like the way they, they mixed it up. And so, <laughs> there's a knife with my name on it. But, you know, here's yeah. what I like about Here's why they like me. Well, let's set the scene no, for that. Here's so, why they like so, me. so if you're a regular at the Hunting Fish Club... We have knives, and right. we will we will digitally engrave yeah. your name yeah. into the knife. So when you come to the table, boom, there's a knife with you your know, name on it. You know why they the like table. me, to be honest with you? Like a lot of people, and I, I've watched this all the time. I don't know why. I used to work at restaurants. I was a dishwasher. I learned how to cook. and it was one of, it was a, I hated it at the time because I was like in Greece for like, you know, four years of my life as a kid. But it was a great experience now because I, I could cook like there's no tomorrow. Um, but... I treat, I see like the, a lot of these Wall Street guys go in there like they own it. They treat the waiters and waitresses like they're chattel. And, yeah, that's uh, terrible. And, you know, and, I they, and they barely tip. And so when I go in there, I'm nice to everybody. You know, I don't, you know, I don't play any grab ass with your, with your, with your very attractive women clientele, uh, uh, um, people who work there, the waiters, the waitresses. And I'm, I try to be a mensch. I don't know. I try to be okay. Well, we learned that growing up, though. Right. You know, my father, my uncles, right. my grandfather, 
He said, make sure your hand reaches your pocket, okay? Yes. And you got to be a sport And don't be an bar. asshole to people. you got to be a sport in a bar, and you got to overtip the wait staff, because I'd it just be nice sends a message. once in a while. Thank you. Okay, course, thanks for non my wine. I mean, you know. Non-linear transaction. It creates good karma. What's your favorite meal? That's a good question. It depends. Um, you know, I don't eat red meat anymore, so I used to be, I would tell you steak would be it. Um... But what do you have at the Hunt and Fish? The Bronzino, right? I eat the Bronzino. Yeah, what I like about the Bronzino and Hunt and Fish it is the cleanest fish you're gonna get. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I, I think I think on a, on a but if you're gonna weigh everything like health yeah. plus taste, the Bronzino and yeah, Hunt the Fish. And, and let me tell you something: if you go in a kitchen and you watch how they they cook it, they take all that oil out of it. They just oh, put it's the great. spice. I mean, so so you're not getting tremendous fat hit with the with the Bronzino. Some of these other restaurants, you're getting hit with a lot of butter while eating the Bronzino. Yeah, no, there's no this, this is good stuff. What about the drinks? What's your favorite drink? Um, I like vodka straight. Me, I'm a, I like 42. The Corvo. Like, you go to the Hunt and Fish, all those cases of 42, those are for me and my friends. Like, you know, if I if I send Brian Gold, the Candyman Air, I say, make sure the 42's so on you the like, table. Like, so you, like, you like tequila, though? I like tequila, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I drink Jack, though, too, because, you know, Jack is Jack, right? At the end of the day, Frank Sinatra, he, you know, you know Frank Sinatra is the first celebrity endorser of a product. The highest case selling of hard liquor is Jack Daniels. Really? Direct result started catalyst Frank I Sinatra. To, I, I, I like Jack, um, but um, my drink is vodka. I, I'm, you know, you put a friggin' uh, I wanna, I, you I wanna, put a, what do you call it, a syringe in my arm. And, what do you thank call it? you. <laughs> I want to thank you for a number of different things, though, okay? So, number one, I want to thank you for our friendship. Number two, I want to thank you for the advice that you gave me leading into what ultimately became the new Wall Street Week. And it's an excellent show. And I appreciate you being and, and on there. By the way, it's an excellent show. And yeah. I think you're, you're lucky that her, mm -hmm. wa you know, watching over your shoulder. Yeah. Because she, so she's it, done a great it, job. It makes it, yeah. it makes That's it a pretty work. production staff at the Fox Business Channel. done an amazing job. Uh, you've been very helpful in terms of the editorial content. Yeah. Something about Fox that needs to be stated, Okay. There's a tremendous amount of team play there. So if I need Maria to help me or Melissa or Charlie right. or I need Liz, or, and I'm probably leaving out a few people, but you get my drift. And yeah. I think every successful organization and something I really am trying to make happen here at Skybridge is to make it a collaboration. Right. And, 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 and I always tell people, people never work for me, they work with me. It's a very big distinction. See, so at CNBC, it, it was totally the opposite. You know, mm -hmm. Everybody hates each other. Yeah, yeah, well, I don't want to go into that. I'm not <laughs> going into that, okay? To, to learn more about Charlie, you can follow him on Twitter. Okay, but you know, you know, his Twitter feed is like TV fourteen or something like that. It's it's C Gasparino, okay, at C Gasparino. Also, this man has wrote some incredible books. You can buy any one of his books on Amazon. I've read every one of your books. I love the book about Grasso. By the way, I'm gonna read some of these titles: Circle of Friends, The Sellout, Bought and Paid for, King of the Club. I thought. I mean, I read every one of your books. Blood on the Street. But King of the Club, I'm telling you, Charlie, you hit it out of the park, King of the Club. Yeah, well, so. I kind of knew Grasso. When you kind of know your your, mm -hmm. your subject, yeah. it helps. Yeah, so that was an amazing book. You can buy any of them on Amazon. I hope that you'll consider picking up my new book. I and I know you tweeted about it, so thank you I'll for buy that. It. Hopping see, over the rabbit hole. I don't believe in taking it free. I buy it. And, you know, and, and remember, if you can, uh, to email us at podcast at skybridgeinsights.com. Please follow me on Twitter at, at Scaramucci. And don't forget to watch Wall Street Week. We're on again tonight. We've got Stephen Einhorn, uh, the nice. uh, vice chairman of uh, Omega. He's a terrific yeah. uh, investor, uh, uh, legend. 
Uh, don't forget to watch that. Fox Business, Friday nights, 8 p.m., Saturday, 9 a.m., Sunday, 9 a.m. Subscribe to this podcast. So please go rate it, review it, so we continue to bring you the content that matters. And until next time, have a prosperous week.